Hey there! I'm Eric, aka Revolver, and I'm Sean, and we're the Verta Guys. We're here to check out the dark side of DC. We're going to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are looking at John Constantine Hellblazer, issues 12 and 13. Alright, Hellblazer number 12 is written by Jamie Delano, art by Richard Piers Rayner and Mark Buckingham, cover by Dave McKeon. This is a cool one, Constantine, with a bunch of multicolored tubes or wires stretching out from his body, and he's sort of held prisoner behind this metallic pentagram and a pair of demons sharing one arm stretched between them. Yeah, is that an upside-down pentagram? Is a pentagram supposed to point upwards? I think the, the top of the star pointing upward is a, is a safe, good pentagram. And oh. down is the evil version. Oh, okay. So it's like a cross. If it's upside down, then bad. Something like that. Not an expert. Okay. So we jump into this comic, and it just it just goes right in. It has no time for prologue. It's just like, the demon Nurgle. He is mighty pissed off. So we are not going to jump right in. I'm going to tell you right now that previously, at Nurgle's request, John had infected his lady friend Zed with Nurgle's demon blood in the boudoir preventing her from giving birth to the Messiah and causing her death along with the deaths of all the resurrection in this crusaders. Case, the, in this case, the boudoir was a clump of trees. <laughs> yeah, it was a large tree. <laughs> John got the better of Nurgle by loaning his body to Swamp Thing, who got his wife, that's Swamp Thing's wife, not John's wife, Abby, pregnant with a neutral Messiah, stealing the opportunity from Nurgle. Yeah, fuck you, dude. <laughs> Use your own blood against you. Also, previously, we had found out what happened to John and Nurgle in Newcastle 10 years ago in 1978, which is... Okay, here's the super short version. There was a demon, and it was possessing a kid. It wasn't really a demon. It was more like a terror elemental. And John thought if he summoned a demon, he could have it kill it. But he summoned badly because he didn't know Nurgle's name, which he just found out, like, two issues ago. So Nurgle killed the demon, took the kid to hell, said he would take John to hell when he died because he summoned a demon, and that was evil. Yeah, and he spent the next decade or so slaughtering all of John's friends who were there. Well, now that's debatable. All of them have died, but it wasn't really Nurgle. Oh, yeah, I guess I had the idea that he sort of was planting the seeds or subtly manipulating them towards their destinies. But maybe he's just a credit-claiming villain. Hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah, so on this page we find Nurgle pissed that John tricked him. Hell's honor demands revenge. And on this page, Nurgle is pictured in the form that we just saw for the first time in the Newcastle flashback. Right. Not the red-skinned demon that has interacted with Constantine more recently, but the wild, psychedelically colored mess of stuff, including some angry man heads and a fly's head and a big, giant Constantine in a trench coat in the back. Angry man heads is a really funny phrase. Yeah, I know. So, yeah, there he is. Meanwhile, Constantine is sleeping in a camper, and he wakes up to find that the bloody candles have gone out. Do you suppose his caravan has any wheels on it? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> right. let's, don't let's start. <laughs> yeah, so he has his camper set up in a junkyard, which is possibly the same one that he visited in Newcastle in issue 11. Yeah, I think it's implied that it is. Now, I wondered if the candles were, like, key to some kind of protection spell that he set up for himself. 
He seems to be very concerned that they've gone out. Yeah, that was my impression, that he had been maintaining a spell that would have shielded his location from Nurgle using the candles, and now that they've gone out, Nurgle is able to reach him. He still doesn't know where John is, but he is able to activate the demon blood in John's body and give him a fever. Yeah, and he gives him a weird old head. Uh, what? Here, the, look at his weird old head. Oh, I thought you said, never mind. <laughs> Look at that! Look at that face. That's that's some seriously. And he says that he looks like a a Clearasil advert, which is like one of the few times that John Constantine has made reference to a product, and I have known what that product is. Ah, yeah, that one's available on both sides of the pond. Yeah, yeah. So he he feels terrible. He has the shakes. He lights up a candle and looks in his tiny mirror in his caravan, and his face seems to be melting off. He's got sores all over his face. Bro, your motherfucking face. And that's when we get our title, The Devil You Know. So John has been hiding out here looking for a way to kill Nurgle. Yeah, and he has no idea what his strategy should be. He says it's been a week or something? Over a week, yeah. Over a week, and no closer to a good idea. Now Swamp Thing could help. Back when they met in number 10, Nurgle was pretty scared of Swamp Thing. Yeah, that's right, and Swamp Thing even mentions at some point in this issue, I didn't write down where, but he mentions that perhaps John is hiding, you know, behind the shadow of his elemental friend. Oh, oh you mean Nurgle says that, yeah. Yeah, Nurgle says it. Nurgle says that maybe that's what's happening, but John doesn't actually take that option. Yeah, now Swamp Thing is away playing Happy Family, he's just gotten his wife Addie pregnant, and John doesn't want to bother him, basically, and all of his human friends are dead. <laughs> yeah, he says... They're all either dead or not answering the phone. You'd think I've got some disgusting disease. And this thought actually makes him laugh, despite his uh, the pathetic state he's in. Yeah, now John reaches into the pocket of his trench coat and finds his gas bill. And it's 20,000 pounds. Is that a lot? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that one worked on me. It is... Unusually high, and it's also unusual that written on the gas bill is Constantine, you treacherous bastard. I can get into your bank account too. Phone this number pronto. RS. Yeah, RS. Could it be somehow Richie Simpson is still alive? And uh, I think we called this one. Yeah, we were both pretty sure Richie Simpson was still alive. You underestimated cyberspace, John. Yeah, Constantine was like, oh, it's sad, he's dead. Oh, another one of my friends, woe is me. Um, <laughs> but actually, we were like, we're, there's no reason that he couldn't still be alive in cyberspace, in computer land. <laughs> yeah, so he picks up the phone, he starts talking to Richie. Now, Richie's not happy to be in the internet anymore, but John tells him, your body's fried. Yeah, but even though this is the first time he's hearing that his body's fried, he's apparently laid out an entire plan, because he's got nothing better to do, for how to put himself back into meat space. Yeah, he needs John to order some special equipment. Actually, he's already paid for it. He just needs John to tell where he is so it can be delivered. Some special hardware waiting at Amstrad. Meanwhile, Nurgle is walking around in his bizarro Sephiroth form when Agony and Ecstasy show up. Now, can you 
tell us where we've seen these characters before. This is actually their first appearance, but we ran into them a little earlier in our podcast back in Sandman issue number four, when Morpheus went to hell. Yes, that's right. So they're sort of like hell's retainers or messengers or something of that sort. Well, in fact, they describe themselves as slave twins of the Inquisition, and it seems like their job is to enforce discipline among demons. Certainly that's what they're here to do now, because Nurgle has been acting too slowly for Hell's honor, and the Triumvirate are not happy with him. The lords Lucifer, Beelzebub, and Belial call you to account, they say. Yeah, now this is a slightly different Triumvirate than we see a little later in the timeline in that Sandman issue. Right. That was Lucifer, Beelzebub, and Azazel. Belial will apparently be replaced soon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is in itself different from the, uh, the Three Lords of Hell that we will see in the Dangerous Habits story arc. Yeah. So they put Nurgle on notice. Constantine... Yeah, specifically he has until dawn to find and capture Constantine. Right. Meanwhile, Constantine takes delivery of Richie's gear. Yeah, so he sets up the hardware, and Richie is asking him for a body, but John has an ethics problem with that. Jesus, mate, hang about. Don't you think there might be a question of ethics here? But actually, there's a more pressing problem, and he decides to jump into cyberspace himself so they can talk about it face to face. Just match your alpha waves to the computer pattern on the screen and let go. Well, that's, you know, alpha waves, and anybody can do that. Yeah, and so John is now standing in something approximating a form he's familiar with. At least they're both drawn the same way they would be if they were in the real world. He's standing in cyberspace with Richie. Yeah, but I like that instead of little circles connecting their thought bubbles, it's little squares, and they're using these thought bubbles instead of speech bubbles to talk. Right. John says it's sort of like being in the astral dimension, but more mathematical. Yeah, I like that bit too. So here he's sort of blackmailing Richie into helping him defeat Nurgle, or else he won't help Richie get out of cyberspace. Right. Well, he, he frames it more in the form of a trade, I think. But yeah, he reminds Richie that this is the demon from Newcastle and it's time for them both to get their revenge. And Richie feels that he hasn't got much of a choice. He decides to go along with it. Right. Now, John's narration said that the equipment arrived in the morning, which means that Nurgle did not find him by dawn. Yeah, it's only been one page, and we didn't really see any of Nurgle looking, but we come back to him, and Agony and Ecstasy are back to tell him that his time is up. But, unfortunately, Constantine has an even bigger timing problem than Nurgle does, and chooses that moment to pick a fight with him. Yeah, they point out that John has escaped from hell three times, which wins him liberty. And that's when they all hear John's voice summoning Nurgle to Newcastle for a fight. So Agony and Ecstasy release Nurgle to go join the fight. Yeah, and he transforms back into the red demon form that we are more used to seeing. Yeah, and then that form just bursts out of John's computer monitor. Ah! Surprise, motherfucker! <laughs> John is speechless with terror as Nurgle grabs him and is about to rip his soul out. But then Nurgle realizes it's the wrong soul. Yeah, that's right. Constantine isn't in his own body. Instead, it's Richie's brain that's in there. 
John's hiding in the computer, so Nurgle's going to have to come in after him. And we have a nice bit here as Nurgle decides to boast about the tortures that he's going to inflict on Constantine, and Constantine replies, Do leave it out, you pompous prat! <laughs> and then as Richie in John's body tells Nurgle how to get into the computer, Nurgle says, Pah! Science! The games of children! Mere prestidigitation! Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> so, like, for some reason he's like, Yeah! And Constantine's like, Uh-oh! <laughs> and that never really did make sense to me. Just like a random, yeah! Uh-oh! Right in the middle of a comic book. Yes, so Nurgle says, Do you think that hiding in this playground will help you conquer me? In a word? Yes. Constantine explains that Nurgle might be millions of years old and know all there is to know about magic, but on his time scale, computers were only invented yesterday. So he knows nothing about them, just like John. <laughs> you can't even handle the vending machine. Right. You know, it's just a fucking truth. Sorry, man. So, John lures Nurgle to follow him through the electronic maze while Richie is at the computer working from the outside, making it easy on Constantine and tough on Nurgle. Just like playing a video game. Constantine, stand and fight! Third Nurgle voice in three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're not seeing the of depth and variety of Constantine voices that you usually bring to the floor. John says, no bloody chance. What do you take me for, stupid? The next page is a two-page spread, which is fairly uh, obviously a two-page spread, so good for that. But this is interesting because Constantine describes the demon's rage and lust for violence as being akin to the behavior of an addict. Like, perhaps this is the plot's way of kind of hand-waving why Nurgle becomes so easy to manipulate. Mm -hmm. But basically, John is like, he can be controlled and manipulated because he's so single-minded. It's almost as if he's not in control of himself. Yeah, and in a way, this is classic John. It's, it's borrowed magic and borrowed technology, but his plan hinges on his own cleverness and his ability to play demons. Well, yeah, and he's playing Richie, too. I mean, John really sees the angle... In any situation. Yeah. So Nurgle finally corners John, but then John tells Richie, do it now. Third Constantine voice in three minutes. <laughs> well, here's another Nurgle one for you. That ghastly light! What is this place? I'll give you three guesses, pal. Cherubim, seraphim, angels. You have lured me to the edge of heaven. I am destroyed. Yeah, that's right. Got it in one, you bastard. Sweet. That was the fourth one, but I think it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, not bad. So, <laughs> so basically, the internet is like access to the mystical dimensions. It's not a separate world the way that we might understand it now, where they're just in the phone lines and they're communicating with the systems. They're a series of tubes. Like, yeah, they're literally like in the mystical universe. They're just accessing it through computers. They're kind of on the astral plane. And what that means is that they can reach all the other mystical planes. And so that's why John was able to lure Nurgle right to the edge of heaven without him realizing it. So next we get another two-page spread, and this is John watching as the angels tear Nurgle to pieces. No, my trespass was not malevolent. Please. And, oh my god, this is like the stupidest face I think I've ever seen. <laughs> the face John's making here? Yeah, the face that he, he says revenge is sweet. 
Yeah, it's, it's just horrible. The For art... clarification's sake, you were speaking as an art critic here. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not criticizing the character. I am saying that this panel looks just incredibly goofy beyond anything we've seen before. Fair enough. I can't say that I know what effect was being aimed for in this panel. Yeah. John um, says that he's enjoying watching Nurgle suffer. Yeah, and he also says that angels aren't beatific. Yeah, I don't know where anyone ever got the idea angels were beatific. They scared the crap out of me. Right. So, yeah, he watches with a mixture of terror and satisfaction as the angels destroy Nurgle. Yeah. Got they, it in one. They rip him into a fine, soft rain, roseate against the light of life. I liked that line. <laughs> yeah, that's not bad. He also says, I guess that's as close to heaven as I'm ever likely to get. Right. So, back in the caravan, his voice tells Richie that it worked. And we see that Nurgle's body didn't burn up like Richie's did, because Richie had disconnected it before he got to heaven. You unplugged it? What the hell for? What are you up to, mate? Oh, nothing much. Just a bit of body snatching. I'm sorry, John, but you can't expect me to go back in there voluntarily. You're being evicted. Yeah, Richie has taken over Constantine's body. This is twice in like a week for Constantine. Oh yeah, because of the stuff with Swamp Thing. Yes, indeed. But John has another card to play, as he reveals to Richie that his body is dying, racked by the demonic fever. Yeah, and I wonder if this is just something that he came up with off the top of his head. Like, you know, again, he's found the angle very quickly. Oh, you don't want that body. It's fucked. Yeah, I'm afraid in the issues we cover today, we don't see him take any measure to not die of this demon blood fever. So I don't know if that means that it's just not actually killing him and he, he got Richie with that one, or if that's something that's going to have to happen in the next few issues. Right. So Constantine manages to talk Richie into Nurgle's body instead. You know, with a demonic body, you have a lot more power, you can do whatever you want, and you're not dying, which is a big plus. Yes, but Nurgle is ancient and powerful, and his body is too much for Richie. It's dying around him. His soul isn't enough to sustain it. Yeah, and we get another struth <laughs> as Constantine watches this taking place. Yes, but Richie is able to convert the body as it dies, the raw materials, into a new sort of electronic beast form. Yeah. Now, this is another pretty cool-looking transformation here. Constantine comments that the world already has enough megalomaniacs and supervillains in it. That's right. Richie says, If you only knew, with the energy that's coursing through me, I could rule the world. So, Richie, me old mate, are you a good guy or a bad guy? I don't know. I haven't decided yet. So, Constantine's pretty scared of Richie, but he does suggest that he can handle it. Oh well, better the devil you know. Is that the title? Yeah, title is that, the, is that the title of the issue? I see what you did there. I see what you did there, Jamie Delano. <laughs> Quiet. Something's coming, Richie says. Right. Agony and ecstasy appear. By hell's rules of engagement, they say, John has won, and that means he gets to go free. Until he dies. Hell is still his final destination. That's a movie. Oh, God, I said that, didn't I? You sure did. 
But with the magic of computers, we can think it like you never did. <laughs> you mean that's it? I can go? Of course, fellows eternal, and we know that when your time in this place is over, you'll join us willingly in the other. Well, maybe catch you later then. But I wouldn't hold your breath. However, Richie is not so lucky. He's in a demon body, and demon bodies are not permitted to walk the earth freely. He has to spend at least 10,000 years in agony, and ecstasy, before he's allowed to travel north of Purgatory. One day, perhaps, when you have learned your craft and risen through the ranks, you may be allowed to travel beyond Purgatory. Yeah, so we never really talked about the design of these demons. Agony and ecstasy are a pair of pure white androgynous figures wrapped in barbed wire. Yeah, I think we might have described them when they showed up in Sandman. Okay. At any rate, this is where they take off the barbed wire and loop it around Richie in his new form and drag him off to hell. Now, on the last page, John emerges in the car graveyard and says, you know, he should feel more sorry for Richie than he does, but what he's really feeling is relief. And for the first time since the Newcastle incident, he's thinking about the future without the weight of the past bearing down on him. Yeah, and for the species to survive, he says, we all have to face the demons within. It's not those grotesque, tired institutions of heaven and hell that are the problem. It's the devils we know. Right. Basically, human beings are the issue. And that's the second title drop. <laughs> yeah. As he uh, looks into the car mirror that he's ripped off of a car in the junkyard and sees his own... Poxy reflection? His own, yeah, his poxy reflection with kind of a... Kind of a, that was tough, smile. Right. Yeah, he... Gives sort of a devil-may-care grin. So I thought that that was a pretty good issue. Yeah, I thought it wrapped up the Nurgle storyline in kind of a clever way, and it was satisfying to return to Richie Simpson. The art was really trippy and kind of effective, but it was just a bit too busy. Yeah, that's fair. I can't say that I had as much fun with the cyberspace art as I did back in number seven, was it? Oh, definitely not. It was a lot more fun and, and weird at that point. I guess, maybe not a lot more weird, but its weirdness had maybe a little bit more intention to it. Here, this issue, it has a lot of weird panel shapes. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of diagonal panel breaks and weird layouts. And it's just not towards a heck of a lot of purpose. Like, I understand that they're trying to do a trippy... You know, we're in the internet, we're in the astral planes kind of thing. But it's it's too much trippy and not enough easily readable action mm -hmm. to make it effective. And it's trying to show that things are happening very fast, as John is in a life-and-death chase with Nurgle. Probably could have done a little better at showing why he's able to keep ahead that the, the maze is reshaping itself to make itself inconvenient for Nurgle. Yeah, that's true. We really got that plot point from the narration, yeah, not from the art. I do think that the angels that we see in this issue are quite cool. Immense, androgynous, made of pure light. Very yeah. scary. Yeah, except for the goofball-ass Constantine face. That, <laughs> that page has really good art. So, that brings us to Hellblazer issue number 13, On the Beach.
The title is obviously derived from the 1957 novel by Neville Shute about Australia waiting for the fallout to arrive in the aftermath of a nuclear war. And that is in keeping with the themes of this issue. Yeah. It's written by Jamie Delano, art by Richard Pierce Rayner and Mark Buckingham, and this issue we have a guest credit, Mike Hoffman. Okay, now do you know who Mike Hoffman is? Because the name didn't ring any bells with me. I can't say that I do. The cover is by Dave McKeon, and it shows Constantine standing on a beach looking towards what we will find out is a nuclear power plant. Yeah, and this image is kind of on a postcard almost that seems to be sitting on a backdrop of sand and pebbles. Yes, and a skeletal bird. All right, so we open on Constantine's narration. This is a strange place to find yourself, as he's on a sunny beach on a nice day. Yeah, and there's a sign there advertising the newspaper that says, Police still seek Paddington fiend. That'll come back. Yeah, and John looks obviously out of place. He's got his sunglasses and his trench coat in what is probably inappropriately nice weather for those, uh... Raymonds? Sure. Yeah, I like that he's thinking back to the idyllic beach days of his youth, and one of the things that he remembers is comic books. Every time they mention that Constantine's a comic book fan, it makes me happy. Yeah, he orders an ice cream, and then he complains that the ice creams were bigger than he was a child. And there's a panel of him looking at a teeny tiny ice cream that fits between his fingers. But if you look at the previous panel, he had a full-size ice cream cone that any person might be happy to receive from a store, especially just for 30 pence. So I think he's just being cynical for cynical's sake. Well, yeah, and he does sort of descend into cynicism in the next couple of pages as he, you know, imagines shitty scenarios and adult concerns leeching into his holiday and kind of ruining the fun of his idyllic childhood. But it's also clear that, like, he doesn't even know if any of that stuff really happened to him. That's an interesting way of putting it. What we have here are a bunch of flashbacks, and they're pink-tinged so that we can tell that they're flashbacks. I guess they could be imaginations as well, in which John, as a child, is visiting this beach. And I'm suspecting that they must be near Liverpool, since that's where he grew up, if he did visit this place as a child. He thinks the beach is now older, shabbier, trodden down, but he wonders if he only remembers it being different, or if it was always that way, and if he just had a certain innocence that he doesn't have now. Yeah, and on the subject of cynicism, there are protesters basically complaining about the presence of a nuclear power plant nearby. Yeah, this structure that we see across the bay is a nuclear plant. This is a really interesting panel to me on this page, as John cuts his foot on something on the beach. This is the child John in the flashback, and with his cut bleeding into the ocean and the pink tinge of the flashback, it looks like the entire ocean is blood from his foot. Well, yeah, it's also interesting that when we cut back to the present, we see the same foot now clad protectively in a shoe. Yeah, that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, and we wonder if, you know, part of the reason that Constantine is enjoying the beach in a suit and trench coat is just that he's unable to make himself vulnerable in the way that he did as a child. Well, yeah, the difference between Constantine as a child and Constantine as an adult is a shell of toughness. Now, so the next page makes clear that Constantine is sort of laying low here. It's late in the season, so the resort is not well populated. 
I guess the nuclear power plant probably has something to do with that as well. And part of the reason that he's laying low is that he is indeed the Paddington fiend. The police have given him the credit for Nurgle's murders, which makes sense since his landlady and his housemate were killed, and he hasn't been back to the apartment since. That's right. In issue number 10, Nurgle killed his uh, downstairs neighbor, Mighty Mouse, and his landlady, Mrs. McGuire, in his fury over having lost the evil messiah opportunity. I also like that on this page, John catches himself and says, Christ, you're such a morbid bastard, Constantine. It took him three pages to figure that out? <laughs> yeah, I think we got it from about five panels in. John is enjoying the pleasant scene, except for the nuclear power plant, which he describes as squatting like some blank, ugly tombstone waiting to be inscribed with a million names. Yeah, and he mentions that the sun on the beach might be good for his complexion, as he still bears some of the spots from his demon blood fever. Yeah, that's what I find. Is when I'm breaking out, you know, the thing you want to do is just get as sunburned as possible. <laughs> that always helps the situation. <laughs> so a pair of jet fighters fly in from the direction of the nuclear plant, and now this is a real thing that happens in the UK and probably some places in the US is that there are places where jet fighters fly very close to civilian areas, to beaches in particular. And it seems like they're close enough here to knock John off his feet. Oh, see, I got the impression that they, like, had bombed the nuclear plant or something, and that's why the disaster that follows occurs. But I like John's straightforward response when he yells at them, Crash, you bastards! Yeah, and he muses how, amazing how we can't afford to keep the planet clean, but we can buy toys for the boys. He's pretty cynical about the military in general. As yeah. he's mentioned both in the Vietnam issue number five and when he complained about the Falklands War. Yeah, and I think I think we've seen a couple of instances of him complaining about government in a broader sense. Yeah, and he thinks that the pilots should go get girlfriends, and that causes him to remember Zed, which is an unhappy topic. Now, it's just about then that an unpleasant fellow named Tony and Tony's girlfriend come along. Yeah, I have written down here, a young couple wanders near the guy's tool shed. <laughs> yeah, that just about sums it up, and... We don't really need to go into everything that he says, but he works in the nuclear plant and thinks that safety precautions are just costing him money and thinks that he's probably a little radioactive, but he doesn't care because he hasn't died yet. Right, he boasts that he's been exposed over the max dozens of times. And it's not long after that that a ton of seagulls start dive-bombing the area. Yeah, John kind of wishes he was a seagull, and I think there's a sequence here of him sort of imagining, viewing this scene from the bird's eye view. Somebody stop the world. I'm scared and I want to get off. I want to fly, high, confident, and free. I want to soar, shouting, into the mouth of tomorrow. I want to gaze into the sun's burning eye. For in this world, there are dragons hatching. And he witnesses from the bird's eye view as the nuclear plant explodes. A seagull crashes down next to John, and his fantasy continues with a mother holding her children close, and Tony the idiot running back to the plant to save his boots that cost 40 quid. <laughs> yeah, he sees the explosion and says he's got to get to work. 
And another one of the vacationers on the beach says, it's snowing seagulls. Yeah, that's what happens in the nuclear winter, kid. And there's a skeletal seagull visible in the foreground. So Tony's girlfriend asks John for a smoke, and he turns her down. Uh, <laughs> mean bastard. Wait till my boyfriend gets back with his boots. He'll give you a right kicking. Ha! Huh, he won't get near me. Why not? I'll see him coming, won't I? He'll be glowing in the dark. It's worth noting that on this page, Tony's girlfriend is drawn as quite attractive in her green bikini. That's something that will change as the issue goes on. Yeah, John's features are considerably more distinguished as well. Yeah, that's right. He's not looking poxy anymore. So then we have the pathetic scene of the mother blaming her children's lesions on an allergy to feathers. John says that he'll go looking for her husband for her. Yeah, so he runs off to find her husband, but he finds the city, Liverpool perhaps, overrun by a tide of garbage. Yeah, dead birds and dust. And then two giant men in radiation suits appear, and they try to capture John for being fouled up. That is meaning irradiated. They point a Geiger counter off, and then it goes off. Right. Now, at this point, we're sort of rapidly discovering that this story isn't making any sense, and mm -hmm. there's no way that we're meant to take it literally. That's fair to say, yeah. These two guys capture John, and in the next panel, he's arriving back at the beach without any intervening events. Yeah, and the mother says it doesn't matter that the husband isn't coming back because she's decided that the only way for her children to survive will be to grow gills, and so she carries them into the water. Right. Now John looks into a pool on the beach, and he sees his own face with the lesions of radiation poisoning appearing, and then he reaches into the pool and pulls out a twisted demonic hand. Way to go, John. That one will be popular. <laughs> John goes to Tony's girlfriend with his catch and finds that she has built a house and is awaiting Tony's return. Yeah, basically a sandcastle that's house-sized, and there's also a smaller sandcastle in front of it. It looks a bit like Yoda's place. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but he moves in instead. Yeah, he offers her the hand as a courting gift, saying, They're fish fingers. Oh, John, you dream in puns. <laughs> these two might not like each other much but as the last of their race they are driven by the needs of evolution to procreate despite oh. the fact that radiation is tearing them apart they have sex and she becomes pregnant yeah and here we have the notably awful image of them kissing as their teeth crumble the pregnancy passes quickly in the space of about a page she asks John to feel her belly, and the baby has two heads. John and Tony's girlfriend are both withering quickly and becoming both progressively more old-looking and more diseased-looking. Mm -hmm. So she gives birth to a pure, white, healthy-looking two-headed seal. And it quickly escapes from John's grasp. It's a loose seal. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, so it heads for the ocean faster than he can chase. And he is saddened to lose it, but grateful that it has a chance. But skeletal birds quickly descend on it and tear it to pieces. The last hope for the human race is destroyed. My only child, my last chance for immortality. And they've eaten him. So there's kind of a subtextual layer here where he's thinking about 
maybe both his child with Abby and his potential future with Zed, both of which have been eaten by his dangerous lifestyle. Yeah, I think that's a fair interpretation. Also, I want to point out that uh, the skeletal birds eating the, the seal is actually quite scary. Mm. The seagulls attack John next and pick his bones clean of flesh, and his skeleton remains alive and walks into the ocean. Collapsing slowly into extinction. John wakes up on the beach. Constantine, the old mate. You've got to do something about these bloody nightmares. Sooner or later, they're going to kill you. Now, one wonders, is this the same nightmare problem that he's had since Newcastle that we know will eventually be resolved by Morpheus? Or is this a side effect of the demon fever? That was my read, or I should say the former was my read, that this is before he meets with Morpheus and asks for his nightmares to be removed, and Morpheus grants that in exchange for Constantine's help finding the sand pouch. Yeah, so actually I think this might be the last Constantine, or Hellblazer issue, before Sandman number three. Oh, I thought it took place between Hellblazer 17 and 18 or something. Okay. But, but yeah, it's coming up quickly, the premiere of Sandman. And these two books will be contemporaneous quite soon. Yeah, so it's perhaps an unhappy accident that to us, having come from Sandman, there's not a lot of stakes here, as he's dealing with a problem that we know gets resolved quite soon in another book. Right. Even so, this is a pretty pointless issue. There's a lot of weird, albeit reasonably horrifying imagery. Well, yeah, like Rose from Sandman, I kind of hate it was all a dream. <laughs> yeah. And... I also just thought that the sort of nightmarish illogic of this really deprives the story of any stakes. Mm. You felt that it became obviously a dream so early that we didn't have any reason to invest in what was going on in it. I don't know if you even really need to conceal the fact that it's a dream to make it an effective story, but you do have to have the character believe in it so thoroughly that we can feel their frustration with the illogic of goings-on robbing them of their success. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't even say that it's particularly hidden. If you look at... I can't tell you the page number of this page, but it's the one where the seagull falls right next to John. And the dream sequence is set in panels that are set into the larger image of John on the beach. The sky is different in them, showing that they're clearly a different scene. I just immediately read that as, oh, his fantasy is going on. Well, fair enough. It took me a few more pages to realize that none of this stuff is supposed to be literally happening. But very shortly after discovering that, I kind of lost all investment in this issue. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really more of a tone poem in comics form than a story. It has something of an anti-nuclear message, which I'm sure was deliberate, but it really doesn't advance the plot or characters at all. Yeah, I think that dream stories or dream issues can be done well. Obviously, a lot of cool stuff in Sandman happens in dreams, Yeah. although maybe that doesn't count because all that stuff has real consequences. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Restless, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, yeah. really good example of a dream episode. The two-part episode of The Sopranos, where Tony's in a coma, and he's just kind of pondering and none of it really matters, not so good. <laughs> okay. And this sort of falls into the latter category for me. All right. 
What about the Dollhouse episode where she was trapped in the attic? All kinds of dream images as she tries to get out of the attic. Yeah, I, I don't understand that episode. <laughs> <laughs> that is the weirdest. I don't get it. <laughs> what about the one where Dr. Crusher is stuck in a static warp shell? Wait, is that the one where the Enterprise is progressively shrinking? Yeah, that's yeah. a good episode. That, yeah, that's pretty cool. Hey, did you notice that he uses the phrase rawhide like four times in the narration in this issue? I can't say that I did. Yeah, that phrase keeps popping up. First he says that he wants to watch the show on TV, and then... Oh yeah, it, when he was a child he wanted to go home and watch rawhide. Yeah, but it just keeps coming up after that. There's like a couple more rawhides, I think. And well, maybe I that's... don't know why. Like, why does he keep... Coming back to that phrase, and what is Delano implying with it? Well, maybe Delano finds that describing flesh as rawhide is an evocative way of describing it as not, you know, supple, healthy flesh. Maybe also, though, it's a thing where, you know, as you're thinking about something and you have a dream, it becomes an aspect of the dream. Yeah, I guess. In any case, I found it strange. So, yeah, that brings us to the end of this two-issue run of Hellblazer. Yeah, we had a very impactful issue in Jones' Battle of Nurgle, and one that was not so much. And an issue that didn't matter at all. <laughs> now it's time for a segment I like to call, Hey Sean, Read This. Now, normally in this segment, I blindside Sean with a newer Vertigo comic. This time around, we're going to be reading something that's actually not published under the Vertigo imprint. It's DC's Sandman Special, which recently came out to commemorate Jack Kirby, and deals with his version of the Sandman. Ah, okay. Let's have it. Okay, so the first story is by... Written by Dan Jurgens with art by John Bogdanov. Right, and this is the one where the kid is having a bunch of nightmares. Should we go ahead and spoil these stories? I mean, if somebody wants to pick this up, there's not a ton of story in there. No, yeah, I... They're... They're just a little unfun. There's not a lot of plot that can be ruined by spoilers. So the kid's having nightmares that are so strong these monsters are going to come through to reality. And these monsters, by these monsters I mean like Fin Fang Foom and Dark Side guys that Kirby designed. Right, they're all Jack Kirby style monsters. Yeah, and then the golden, uh, excuse me, the Silver Age Sandman, Garrett Sanford, has to go and try to stop those monsters with the help of Brood and Glob, who he usually keeps in cells. That was kind of hinted at in the Sandman issues. He was seen putting them in a cell in one of Jed's dreams, but they were just hanging out in the dream dome, otherwise. Right. And, yeah, and so they go fight the monsters, and they have to break through the dream space to get to the kid's mind. And um, and there was a cool double-page spread where they broke through into a completely different art style. <laughs> yeah. And then they break into the kid's mind and, and fight the monsters. They get the help of a guy who looks a lot like Thor. Right. I'm not sure if he's supposed to look more like a different character, but he looks a lot like Thor. And then they fight off the monsters, and they find out that the kid is, of course, Jack Kirby, and he's really great at designing monsters, and he's got a great future designing monsters ahead of him. Right. Yeah, they find drawings in his room that are signed... Is it Jacob, Jacob Kurtzberg? Jacob Kurtzberg, right. Right. And, and not just monsters, mind you, but heroes. The Thor-like character is another imagination of his that helped out, even though he was going to dissolve once the dream creatures didn't become real. Yeah. And the second story, Caravan of Crisis, written by Steve Orlando, with pencils by Rick Leonardi and inks by 
Dan Green. Now this one is a bit more interesting to men on our mission as it deals with characters we saw just last week in Sandman 14 through 16. Jed Walker. Yes. The now, brother of Rose Walker. Yeah, now Jed in the Silver Age Sandman series was the kid in whose mind the Dream Dome is located. Yes. And this is, I think, a different version of Jed than the one who turned up in Sandman. This story doesn't keep canon with the Sandman stories. Right. Jed is it an is adult interesting now. They call him Jed Walker, though. Mm-hmm. Rather than didn't wasn't he known by another name in the in the Silver Age? I think that's right. I will double check on that. Okay. Yeah, Jed. He's an adult now, and he's having real trouble dealing with something. And so the Sandman has to go rescue the dream he's supposed to be having from this guy Psychopomp, who's like a dream slave trader. <laughs> yeah. And, and once again, he has to pull Brute and Glob out of the cells to help him. Yeah, and Psychopomp is sort of dressed like... He, he wears like a stovepipe hat. He has a very elaborate costume. Yeah, and pants with some crazy Kirby designs on them. Yeah, some stripy pants. He was cool looking, I gotta, I gotta say. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And then the dream turns out to be his grandfather, Ezra Walker, who has just died. And this is why I say it doesn't keep Sandman continuity, because... We know that Ezra died when Jed was much younger, and that's why he went to live with Clarice and Barnaby, right? Yeah, exactly. So anyway, he copes with his grandfather's death by having this dream and, and is able to heal. Right, and the memory of his grandfather was almost lost when it was taken by the psychopomp. But now at least, you know, he has the memory. Yeah. And there's this really, like, sort of, you know, this sort of Harry Chapin thing where it's like he should have come back and visited, and he was just, like, too proud to... And yeah. so he lost his grandfather, and he almost lost the memory as well. And it tries to end it on an upbeat note where it's like, well, he has the memory, so it's not quite too late. But really, like, his grandfather died without him ever coming home again. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. He can dream about his grandfather, but they never actually had a proper parting. Right. So, so the first story was, like, mostly action, and it was decent action. It turns into a decent Kirby tribute at the end. More perhaps a showcase for Bogdanov's ability to draw in a Kirby style than anything else. And it's not bad, actually. Yeah, it's interesting that that one is written by Dan Jurgens. Dan Jurgens has obviously written a lot of DC comic books over the years, yeah. but I normally, I normally associate him with illustrating his own stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? He famously wrote and drew a lot of the Death of Superman. Right. That was a story, though, that ran through four different books that had four different creative teams. But I think the creative team of one of those books was Jurgens and Jurgens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Bogdanov does pretty good Kirby, actually. He's got the Kirby dots for energy effects, and he draws a bunch of cool Kirby monsters, and he's got some pretty dynamic panels in there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Rick Leonardi maybe doesn't do quite so good a job. His panels are maybe a little less dynamic and definitely show more of a modern influence, particularly in the way he draws Garrett Sanford. Psychopomp did look really cool. Yeah. Yeah, I more or less agree with that. The second story was much less visually striking. A couple of, of inconsequential stories, but it's nice as a tribute. And it's interesting to me to see how a Silver Age Sandman adventure would have looked, having only really read like the modernist parody of them. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a one-shot. Normally, we read Vertigo comics during this segment, and I ask you if it's a comic that you have any interest in continuing to read. Yeah. I can't really ask you that for this one, since it's a one-shot, but I can ask if this, like, 
piques your interest in maybe reading Jack Kirby Sandman sometime. Yeah, I would say so a little bit. Also, Brute and Glob look totally different between the two versions. Like, Bogdanov's Glob is a ball, right? And Leonardi's Glob is like a little goblin. Yeah, that's, that's right. He looks completely different. I also didn't recognize Brute from, like, the way that we saw him in the Dringenberg. Yeah, the sort of Hulk-penciled, almost undead-looking figure. Yeah, yeah. So the, the way that Dringenberg drew him in Sandman and the way that Bogdanov drew him, just, I didn't recognize him at all. Yeah. I mean, I recognize the name. It's but. very strange to go back to Silver Age designs having only seen, like, the... Dragonbird kind of deconstructionist. What would it look like if you met this creature on the street design? Right. Man, this is this is like some cartoony fun right here, though. Oh, this monster gom with all of its tentacles? Yeah. Yeah, and all of its tentacles kind of look like heads. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was a fun book. That was Sandman special number one. And it's worth mentioning that the back of the book contains a number of classic Kirby reprints as well. Yeah, which are a nice a nice bonus. This came out this month from DC Comics. And yeah, we enjoyed reading it. So, what do we have next time? Well, when we come back to Hellblazer, we're going to be reading Hellblazer Annual Number 1, The Bloody Saints. But, join us next week as Preacher questions his captives and relates the tale of Texas and the Space Fan. Hey, if you like our show, check out our website at vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got a lot more episodes, plus show notes and links for every episode. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so using vertiguys at gmail.com or at vertiguys on Twitter. We would love it if you would subscribe or write us a review on iTunes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody.